This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 471. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Okay, Psalm 34. And we saw last time, Psalm 32, David speaking of the blessing of the one whose transgression is forgiven and his sin is covered. And the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. And David speaks of this blessed man because he himself has gone through uh, the experience of having sinned. This is probably following his great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Talking about when he kept silence, his bones waxed old through his roaring all the day long, day and night. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. Then he finally acknowledged his sin confessed this transgression to the Lord, and he forgave it. So he says that, For this shall everyone who is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. So God is his hiding place, and he urges others who are likewise sinful not to be the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. So we should not be stubborn and refuse to come to God. Many sorrows shall come to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy, loving kindness, grace shall surround him. So he calls on the righteous to be glad in the Lord and shout for joy. Then we studied Psalm 33, calling on the righteous to rejoice in the Lord, because praise is comely, it is fitting for the upright. And so he praises the Lord. This is one of the new songs that David called upon his people to sing. Praise the Lord with harp, with psaltery, with an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. For the word of the Lord is right. All his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of his goodness. The heavens were made by his word. He gathers the sea together and lays it up in storehouses. He calls on the earth and the world to fear God and stand in awe of him. Because he made it, he spoke and brought it to pass. He makes the counsels of all the nations nothing, but his counsel stands for the Olam, for the outflow perpetually. And the thought through his heart to generation after generation. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We talked about, of course, that is not the United States, that is Israel. They're the people he chose for his inheritance. He looks down from heaven on all the sons of men, the inhabitants of the earth. And he fashions their hearts alike. He does a work in the hearts of each of them. You realize John says that he enlightens every man who comes into the world. Kings aren't saved by the size of their army. And horses are useless for safety. But the Lord, he is deliverance because his eye is upon those who fear him and on those who hope or trust in his mercy. He delivers them from death, keeps them alive in famine. So he waits for the Lord. Then he calls on, Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. So that was this new song to be sung, especially in the coming kingdom. So now we come upon Psalm 34. So we have Psalm 34, and the title says, A Psalm of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, 
who drove him away, and he departed. So this is a psalm by David, Israel's great shepherd king. And it refers to the incident in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. So if we want to look at that quick. 1 Samuel 21, 10 says, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And of course, that was referring to the Philistines when they sang that. And Achish was the king of the Philistines. So David laid up these words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them, and feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen, that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So this is the incident referred to. Now, a couple things. For Samuel calls him Achish. Psalm 34 calls him Abimelech. Why is that? Well, Abimelech means my brother is king or brother of a king, where the king is a brother. And it was a title for the kings of Gath. We often speak of Pharaoh, and we realize that Pharaoh was just the title for a king of Egypt. There were many, many dozens of pharaohs, because every king of Egypt was called Pharaoh. So you think of Pharaoh, we don't just think of one person. And the same thing's true of Abimelech. But Abimelech, my brother is king, or brother of a king, or the king is a brother, whatever it means. Well, that was a title for a king in Gath. And so all the kings of Gath bore this title, whereas this king's name was Achish. So Achish was his name, Abimelech was his title. Now what are we to think here? Are we to think that David quick composed this psalm in his head while he was standing before Achish and coming up with his plan to act like a madman? He's sitting there, hmm, what should the second line be? No, he's not composing this song as he's standing there before Achish. But notice that it says in the title, "Who drove him, when he changed his behavior before Achish, who drove him away and he departed. So it was actually after he realized that he was in trouble and decided to act the madman. And Achish believed it and drove him away. Then was when he wrote this psalm. Now if we turn back to 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. So David escaped to Achish, and went to this cave. And while he was at the cave, all his family came to him. And I think they realized because Saul was against David, and Saul was murderous and vengeful and, quite frankly, paranoid. And he was ready to kill anyone he thought was against him. David's family realized that they would be in trouble if they remained easily accessible. So they all fled and came to David, where he was hiding at the cave of Dullam. And also while he was there is when the 400 men out of Israel, men who were 
disenchanted with things the way they were, had no inheritance or no portion as it was, probably a lot of second and third and further on sons who, who really didn't have much inheritance because they were born too late in the birth order. People who owed a lot of taxes, who owed debts and couldn't pay them and so forth, they fled and came to David because they were looking toward a better kingdom, a better government that was promised through David. And it's always very interesting to me how everyone else can seem to find David where he's hiding, but Saul and his men can't find him. And we realize that God was watching out for David. But what did David do, we might ask, during this time? Well, he was waiting for his family and these 400 men to join him while he was hiding in this cave. And it seems that one of the things he did is having realized his great deliverance from Achish, from Abimelech, he sat down and wrote this psalm. And Rotherham, in his book on Psalms, gives a very interesting idea, and that is that while David is having many men resort to him, these men are not all necessarily the best instructed in the ways of the Lord. David has walked with the Lord since he was a teenager, and he has come to know the Lord and his ways. But these who are resorting on him, they're looking for a better kingdom, but they aren't necessarily instructed in the ways of the Lord. So instructing them in the Lord and his ways would be something very important for David. And so we can imagine them, him gathering them around, those who are more and more resorting unto him here, and wanting to teach them the ways of the Lord. And this psalm is one thing he could have sung. Of course, we realize that lessons are easier remembered when they're put in rhyme or in music than they are when they're just taught by rote. And so this psalm, he suggests, is something that he gathered these new refugees who are coming and joining him, gather them around and taught them this psalm to teach them some of the ways of the Lord. And that's a very interesting suggestion by Rotherham. We can imagine David, imagine maybe them sitting around a campfire, <laughs> David his eyes shining as he sings of the Lord, the men listening and hearing David, hearing his teaching and, and his enthusiasm for the Lord, instructing his family and his new friends of his in the ways of the Lord. And further, this psalm is another acrostic psalm. And acrostic psalms, I remember, are psalms that each verse starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, of course, if we were doing that in English, you'd have one verse start with A, the next verse start with B, the next verse start with C. Now, we can't possibly translate it that way because, of course, when we translate it, it, it doesn't match up. And we'd have to change the verses too much to make it be like that. Not to mention, of course, the alphabet and Hebrew goes A, B, G, D, so forth. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't follow our same alphabetical order regardless. So we can't really translate it that way, but realize that this psalm was an acrostic, and of course acrostics are also a help with memorization. So we can see that this was something David wanted his men to memorize and to learn. So he uses the occasion of his recent rescue from Abimelech, to write this psalm and to use it as a psalm to teach his men who were resorting to him and joining him at this time in his exile. So that was Rotherham's suggestion. I think it was a very good one. Verse 1, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So David says he will bless Jehovah. I realize that bless is a very nebulous word in English means something vaguely good, but we're not sure what. 
And unfortunately, it translates two different Hebrew words and two different Hebrew concepts. Same thing in Greek. But this particular bless means magnify or exalt. It's the Hebrew barak. And it's similar to the Greek word eulogeo, to bless in the New Testament. So he says, I will magnify, I will exalt, I will speak well of the Lord at all times. His praise, or literally it's his songs of praise, shall continually be in my mouth. So he is at all times and continually going to bless and praise the Lord. Verse 2, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. So David speaks of his soul. That's the Hebrew nephesh, the word for soul. And here it's put for David himself. He will make his boast in the Lord, but he uses his soul. He will make his boast in the Lord. And then he says, the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. So his boast is not in other things. It's not in, as so many people boast, in their family or in their accomplishments or even in their religion. But David's boast is in his God, the Lord, Jehovah, and our true boast should also be in him. Now he makes this boast before the humble. And if we would take that picture Rotherham presents, which I think is a very good one of these exiles who have come out to join David in his own exile, well, these were indeed the humble. These 400 men who resorted to him in the cave. And these are the ones he desires to hear of the Lord and learn to be glad in the Lord, learn to trust in the Lord and boast in him as David does. So we can imagine this growing number of exiles as being the humble he speaks of. Verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So he does not want to do this. He says, I will do this. My soul will do this. But now he calls on those with him to do it with him. He says, magnify the Lord with me. Don't let me do it by myself. Magnify him with me. Let us exalt his name together. And we can imagine David singing this to his companions in this cave and urging them to praise as he did. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So again, David is using this incident before Achish, king of Gath, to teach. He's using it as the occasion of this song. So he says, he sought the Lord and he heard me. Now notice that David, doubtless, did not pray aloud in front of Achish. I don't think when Achish sounded like he was going to kill him, David just stood there and started speaking out loud to the Lord and asking him to deliver him. That would have been a foolish thing to do. But David sought the Lord Think in his mind, in his thoughts, and Jehovah heard his thoughts and answered them. I think the same is certainly true today. We can pray out loud, we can also pray in our thoughts, and the Lord will hear us. So Jehovah heard his thoughts and answered them, and Jehovah delivered David. And notice that David is certain that it was only by Jehovah's help that his ruse worked, and he made his escape. He might have been a good actor, but at the same time, they had already positively identified him as David. Mad or not, they might have wanted to get revenge on him for all the trouble he'd caused them in the past. And they might well have said, well, he's just faking it to try to get away. Yet they were completely taken in. Well, he realizes that it's the Lord heard him and the Lord added his aid. It was no doubt a clever plan, but would it have worked without the Lord's aid? 
Maybe not. Maybe very likely not. So he credits the Lord with delivering him. Verse 5, They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. So they, they looked unto him. Who is the they? Well, it was probably the humble of verse 5. When he said, The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Or the humble of verse 2, I mean. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Well, now the humble look unto him and were lightened. And lightened means they were radiant. You could see it in their faces when they looked unto him. When they considered him, their faces were radiant. Now, this verse starts with the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. They looked on him, and then the phrase, and were lightened, it starts with the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the vav, or the wow, depending on which one you think it should be. In modern Hebrew, they call it the vav, and it's the v. A lot of people who think it was the wow and was pronounced like a w in ancient Hebrew. Well, somehow that's always the argument, isn't it? And some, some languages pronounce it, a V is a W and a W is a V, and then when they get into English, they tend to always do it backwards. You've probably experienced many people who have that accent, they pronounce their Vs and their Ws backwards. So there's this argument about whether this letter was Vav and should be transliterated with a V, and whether it's a Wow and should be transliterated with a W. And we see that in the two transliterations, Jehovah or Yahweh. Of course, the V and the W there both come from Vav or Wow. And it's disagreements as to which one it is. Well, this was the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's otherwise missing from the acrostic. But if we realize that it's here, this verse starts with the fifth letter, but then the second line of the verse starts with the sixth, there's, there's where the wow disappeared to. Now, why does this verse have two of the letters rather than just one like all the other verses? Well, probably it's to make room for the final verse. And the final verse does not have an acrostic letter. It starts with a letter that is not the what should be the next letter in sequence. So probably this the final verse is just to finish the psalm, and he did not bother to have it be acrostic, and so he fit the sixth letter into the fifth verse so that it would not be skipped. Now, Bollinger has an interesting note on this, that the humble looked unto him and were radiant. He suggests that if we look within ourselves, we're miserable. If we look around us, we are distracted. But it is when we look to Yahweh that we become radiant. And I think that is very true. It says, and their faces were not ashamed. Of course, they were not ashamed when they looked to him. Verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. So this poor man cried. So David, speaking of himself as poor, and he is indeed poor at this time, he's had to flee for his life. He's been outcast from his family, his wife, his home, his position as an army commander in Israel. He had been the son-in-law of the king. And now he's been cast out of all of that. And he is on the run, a poor fugitive in the wilderness. And he sought refuge with Achish, his king of Gath. And even there, of course, he was in danger of his life. So he cried, and yet Jehovah heard him. Now again, 
don't think he cried aloud. So Jehovah heard his thoughts, his cry in his mind to Jehovah, and saved him out of all his troubles. So again, the Lord had delivered him from the king of Gath, who otherwise would have no doubt executed him. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. So here we read of the angel of the Lord. And I believe that the angel of the Lord is a reference to the Lord himself in physical form, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the messenger of the Lord. He is the Lord in physical and human form. And of course, this was before he'd taken on the form of a man and become the son of Adam as well as the son of God. But he was still, he was always the messenger of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. Now, he says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round them that fear him. And we too look to the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, as our one mediator, as First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says. He is our one mediator. So we look to him. Now, the angel of the Lord is only mentioned in Psalms 34 and 35, as we'll see in this and the next psalm. But the angel of the Lord encamps around them that fear him. Now, it's hard to think of a single angel encamping around people. I don't know, we could think of a whole group of angels forming their camp around people. But it's hard to think of one individual angel camping around people. But I think it would be better if we'd think of him drawing a circle of protection around David. And that's the idea here. He is drawing a circle of protection around him. So the Lord encampeth around them that fear him and delivereth them. So those who revere and respect the Lord, he delivers them. And of course, this is the important message that David is trying to teach those to whom he is teaching this psalm. Is that they too should trust in the Lord and that the Lord will deliver them. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. So he calls again upon those who hear him to taste and see that the Lord is good. And amen to that. I think we too have tasted of the Lord Jesus Christ and we too have learned that he is good. And we would desire that for others just like David desired that for his these men who were resorting to him. Then he said, Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Now here again we have blessed. And this is not the Barak, the well spoken of, but this is the Hebrew Asher. And it means how happy, or oh the happiness of the man who trusts in him. In Greek this is makarios. And in Greek too there are these two different words we have translated bless. So how happy is the man who trusts in him. Oh the happiness of the man who trusts in him. Verse 9. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. So he calls upon the Lord's saints to fear, to respect, to revere him. And the saints are the set-apart ones, the Lord's set-apart ones. Well, all those the Lord has set apart should revere him, should respect him, should reverence him. And it is very sad when his people show a little respect for their Lord. All his people should learn to respect him as they should. And he says, there is no, For there is no want to them that fear him. But want... In our modern English means desire. You say, I want something. I desire it. 
But in Old English, to want meant to lack or to need. So he doesn't mean they have no desire. He means they have no lack. Now this is not a promise for today. For in the dispensation of grace, we are not promised material blessings. And we cannot say that there aren't those who have believed in Christ who nevertheless lack the things that they need. Sometimes they don't have a home to live in. Sometimes they don't have proper amount of food they need. And yet, we aren't promised such material blessings today. We are promised, over the wealth of his grace. When it comes to the wealth of his grace, we indeed have no lack today either. But this was certainly a promise that they could count on. As they served the Lord and became his saints, the Lord would see to it that they did not lack. And he did, I believe. Verse 10, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. So the young lions, and the lions are the most, they consider the most powerful of animals, and the young ones, of course, would be the strongest, most powerful of all. But even then, might they might fail, and they might lack. But Jehovah is of sufficient power that he will never fail to provide when he desires to do so. So a trust in the Lord, you can be sure that he will never fail to provide. So that they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Now the good things are the things he gives by his choice. Now often we lack what we desire. So we can't say that we don't lack things that we want. But it is the Lord's desire to give us the blessings of his grace. That's his desire today. And the blessings that we receive from the Lord today are of an inward, not of an external character. And as Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, referring to the believer in Christ today, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And these are the blessings we have today, not necessarily the physical blessings supplying every need. Verse 11, Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he says, Come ye children, but the word in Hebrew is actually sons. Come ye sons, hearken unto me. Now the sons of Israel were with David in the cave. And these men, I believe, would later form his royal court when he became a king. I think those who resorted to him early while he was in exile, became his noblemen, some of the highest honored, most important in his government, in his kingdom. These were all sons of Israel, and so he calls the sons to come near and listen to him. And he says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he wants to teach them what will be the most important fact, the most important truth they'll need to cling to in order to be part of his government, and that is the fear of Yahweh. So he is instructing men who will later become part of his government. We can, Much like the Lord Jesus Christ instructed his own disciples, who will later become part of his government. So he's going to teach them the fear of the Lord. And of course he's doing it through inspiration in this psalm. Verse 12, What man is he that desireth life? And loveth many days that he may see good. So what man is he? And this is 
Ish, the male person, what person is he who desires life? Now, I don't think that is life just in this world, because, of course, our life in this world is forfeit. Regardless, we're all going to lose it. It's just a question of sooner or later. But the life we truly desire is the life in the next eon, the kingdom of God. And all should desire this life. So what man is he who desireth life and loveth many days? What many days are those? Many days in this world? Well, if you wanted many days in this world, you maybe wouldn't risk your life going out and joining an exile like David. But that would be seeking those future days of the kingdom to come. That he may see good. Now, good for us is, of course, not promised in this life. We pray that we'll see good in this life. But those who see the kingdom of God will see good. Those who desire life in that eon and love the many days of that eon, they will see good. They will see the good of God in that eon. Well, what should one who desires life, loves many days, and wants to see the good of the kingdom, what should he do? Verse 13, Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. So, David here is teaching the basic teachings regarding the fear of the Lord, as he said in verse 11. And notice that the basic teaching of the fear of the Lord is to do these simple right things that he lists in these verses. Just these simple right things. Yeah, many people seem to think that they can skip doing the simple right and good things. As long as they have prayed the sinner's prayer, then they're okay. And they don't have to do even the simplest and most basic good things to show their fear of the Lord. Well, these people don't know the fear of the Lord. And just because you've prayed the sinner's prayer doesn't mean you actually know the fear of the Lord. And they show that they don't because they don't do these basic things. Well, he says, keep your tongue from evil. And this is the Hebrew ra'ah, which means calamity. So keep your tongue from calamity-causing words. And keep your lips from speaking guile. In Hebrew there is murma, which means deceit. Keep your lips from speaking deceitful things. And your tongue from speaking calamity-causing things. Then he says, verse 14, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So again, depart from calamity, depart from causing others calamity, in other words, and do good instead. Benefit others instead. And then seek peace. Seek union with others and pursue peace. Follow hard after it. Desire it. And notice this is an important thing for rulers. All too often when we have rulers who don't desire peace, they get us into wars that we would be better off not in. But David wants his rulers to be such as seek peace and pursue it. And this is some of the basic teaching of the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord seek union and pursue peaceful union with others. Verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Now David had experienced this, because the eyes of the Lord were indeed upon him while he was before Achish. And so he knows what it means to have Jehovah's favor when he is in trouble. Now he wants the same advantage for his men and for his family who are gathering to him at the cave of Adullam. He wants them too to have the Lord's eyes upon them and his ears open to their cry, so that when they were in trouble, the Lord will deliver them as well. 
But verse 16, he gives the opposite. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. So the Lord's face is against those who do calamity. Now this is exactly what happened to Saul, as we know. He came to calamity, as did his family and his court along with him. Now this hadn't happened yet, but it was going to happen. And this is a warning to those he is teaching that this could happen to them as well if they do not follow the way of the Lord. Now evil here is again ra'ah, so it's doing calamity more than wickedness, but of course to cause others calamity is often a wicked deed. So the face is the Lord against them to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now this doesn't mean that nobody remembers they existed, although of course time does a good job of doing that. And other than the ones listed in the scripture, which number numbers far less than 400 of David's men, we indeed have forgotten that they ever lived. We know the number, we don't know the names, we don't know the individuals. Well, time does that, but understand that even though we don't remember all the people of the past, the Lord remembers them, and many of them will be raised from the dead to live in his kingdom. And yet some will be destroyed, and their remembrance indeed will be cut off from the earth. Now notice this, that the desire is that your name will be remembered on earth. That you will be allowed to continue and to live upon the earth. And yet the majority of Christians want nothing more than to be cut off from the earth and go to heaven. Uh, they say, this, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. They say, if heaven's not my home, then Lord, what would I do? Well, they're just desiring to be cut off from the earth. And they don't understand that the Lord's blessing for them is in the earth. Their desire should be to be raised to live in God's future earth, not to be cut off from it. And they're cutting themselves off in their desire. They don't really understand the hope that the Lord holds out to them. But it's the those who do calamity-causing works whose remembrance is going to be cut off from the earth. And that doesn't mean they're going to heaven either. Verse 17, the righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. So the righteous cry unto the Lord, and the Lord hears. Again, going back to the incident in question before Abimelech. Just like David cried unto the Lord, and the Lord heard. So when the righteous cry unto the Lord, the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. Now we too would do well to look to him in our time of trouble. Now we're not promised what form the deliverance will take. And ultimately, we will even be delivered from death by him through his resurrection. And our trust in him will be justified. So, even if we are not rescued from death, and of course many have been martyred for their stand for the Lord and not been rescued from death, they will be rescued ultimately. So it's best to look to the Lord. Then verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto them, that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a constrite spirit. So the Lord is near those who are of a broken heart. Now this is not speaking of broken by sorrow. That's what we usually think of as when we think of a broken heart, as we think of your heart is broken by sorrow. But this means a heart that is broken from pride. Think of a horse being broken to a rider. Right, The horse he doesn't want 
horse doesn't actually want to carry humans on his back. Seems an unnatural thing to them. He'd rather be free to do what he wanted, not carry such a burden. The horse has to be broken to a rider. And so our inner beings, our pride, needs to be broken in pieces. And then once our inner beings are broken before him, humble before him, then he will hear us, and then he will be near us. So he says that he save us such as be of a contrite spirit, and contrite again means broken, or like the dust, or cut down, or very small. So he saves those who in their spirit, and the spirit has the, is ruach, and here it refers to the mind, the thoughts, the opinions, the values, and so forth, their, their spirit, and of course sometimes particularly spirit means your, your mindset or your attitude, and their attitude is broken before the Lord, they aren't prideful and rebellious and arrogant before the Lord. Their spirit is broken before him, humble before him. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. And afflictions here is again ra'ah. Many are the evils of the righteous. Well, you can see why our King James translators didn't translate ra'ah their usual way. Because <laughs> we'd get very confused if we read about the evils of the righteous. Many are the evils of the righteous. You'd say, what? Well, we understand that evil means basically calamity, not wickedness. You can see what many are the evils of the righteous. Yes, even the righteous come into many evils. Even the righteous experience many calamities. Even the righteous have many sorrowful things come into their life. It's not like they do not face these things. Now, David faced many calamities in his lifetime. Many bad things happened to him. And yet Yahweh did indeed deliver him from them all. Tell, of course, the last one. He faced his death. That calamity struck finally. So he was about 70 years old and he died. But Yahweh will deliver him from that one as well when the resurrection comes. But, of course, David is speaking long before his death. And this latest calamity he faced before Abimelech is a great example the Lord delivered him out of this evil, out of this calamity. Verse 20, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now Bollinger points out that in verse 18, the heart is broken. But here in verse 20, the bones are not. So he keeps all his bones, and it probably refers to the fact that his body is protected from harm. But he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now this is quoted in John 19 and verse 36 as being fulfilled in Christ. Remember when the Sabbath day was coming on and the religious leaders didn't want Christ and the others on the cross to be allowed to remain on the cross for the Sabbath day because they believed that the way you had to writhe around on the cross to get a breath, they thought that was work. So they didn't want anybody to have to hang on a cross on the Sabbath day because they would have to work to stay alive. So Pilate, therefore, commanded his soldiers to break the legs of those on the cross, and they couldn't push themselves up to breathe and would quickly suffocate. When they came to Christ, they found him already dead. So they didn't break his bones, they just stabbed a spear into his side to be sure he was dead. And he was. So none of his bones were broken. They were pulled out of joint, but they weren't broken. And so this verse is 
fulfilled in Christ that none of his bones were broken. He was indeed the righteous one. He indeed suffered calamities, and yet the Lord delivered him out of them all, and not one of his bones was broken. But of course, figuratively, it means nothing shall ultimately harm him. Then verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. So evil, again, meaning calamity. And of course, they translated evil again here because it's speaking of the wicked, whereas they translated it afflictions when it's talking about the righteous. And they would have been better off translating it something like afflictions instead of evil, because that's not what evil means in English, at least not anymore. But calamity is what it means. Calamity will slay the wicked. They will die by calamity. And unlike the righteous, they have no guarantee the Lord is going to save them out of calamity. Calamity, rather, will destroy them. They will die the second death. He says, And they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. In other words, they will be left with nothing, or Bollinger suggests they will be held guilty. Now this does not always happen today. Those who do calamitous works and those who hate the righteous aren't always brought to desolation. They aren't always counted as guilty. Sometimes they're let off. Sometimes they're even honored. Recently we had one of these terrible porn kings died. And he apparently lived out a full life and, and died wealthy from all the wickedness that he had produced throughout his lifetime. doesn't appear to have ever paid for the wickedness he did. Well, of course that's only considering this life. Because this anticipates the kingdom when all will find its ultimate and complete fulfillment. And the wicked will indeed be slain. Those who hate the righteous will be desolate. They will be held guilty. Now verse 22. Again, a verse that does not start with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It actually starts with letter number 17, just like verse 16 did. So the acrostic ends here in order for David to get in the grand conclusion. Verse 22 is, The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. So the Lord redeems, he delivers by his power the soul of his servants. Again, nephesh there is put for the whole person. He delivers the person of his servants. And none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. So those who hate the righteous will be desolate at the end of verse 21. But none of those who trust in him will be desolate at the end of verse 22. This will never be their fate. So in this grand psalm, David celebrates his deliverance from Abimelech and also, as I said, I believe, teaches his men who are resorting on him at this time the truth about the Lord and encourages them to trust in him, even as David does. But for now, we're out of time. We will continue in our next study.